please open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 6 this morning. Now, you need to keep your thumb there because we will be traveling from Mark quite often. We'll be looking at multiple passages this morning. But before we actually do any of that, I want to begin my sermon today by reading a quote to you from a professional photographer of diamonds that I think will actually help us today to understand what I want to share with you from God's Word. This man writes, A diamond's beauty lies in its sparkle. The main challenge when photographing the stone is capturing and showing off that natural brilliance, and to do that, we must shoot the diamonds against the proper backdrop. The proper backdrop. I read that to you this morning because that same thought applies to understanding gospel narratives. They're all better understood if they're set against the proper backdrop. And so what I want to do today is I want to set that backdrop in front of you today. I'll give you a little bit of a background and history of what's going on in this narrative we'll be covering today. And I want to do that because, frankly, we probably all know this narrative so well that we actually gloss over a lot of the truth that's there before our eyes. And, and I want us to, to come to this very familiar narrative and see it sparkle with the brilliance of Christ as it should when we read this and we study it today and next week. So what I want to do today is I want to introduce you, hopefully afresh, to the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 in Mark 6, 30 to 44. I'm going to read this in a second to you in its fullness. But before I do, let me just make a, a comment on this. This miracle that we see here in Mark 6, 30 to 44 is one of two miracles that actually show up in all four Gospels. It's in all four. The other miracle is the resurrection of Jesus. So that tells me that this miracle is significant. But listen as I read, beginning in verse 30, where we left off last time. It says, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now, many saw them going and recognized them and ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, <laughs> the obvious, as usual, this is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing he gave thanks, and he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish, 
And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. It's a phenomenal miracle. There were 5,000 men for sure. And if you add in the women and children that were likely there with them, you're talking about a group of almost 10,000 people. The largest group that Jesus addressed at any one time in his earthly ministry. And like I said, this is obviously a familiar story to all of us here today. But, but I hope that today it will once again amaze you as we just set the backdrop behind it so we can see what's really happening in its context. It's, it's meant to help us see something about Jesus, right? It, it's going to show us his glory as we see what's happening behind the scenes And there's a brilliancy here of Christ that we miss sometimes when we don't know what the setting is and what's going on in this environment. And so we need to learn to view this text, I think, in its proper context. And that would be historically and prophetically. We need to view this text in its historical and prophetic context. Basically, what we need to do is come to this story and see that it does have a backdrop. The story has to have this backdrop, I think, to be understood properly. And so I hope to explain this to you and and help you to see really the multifaceted glory and beauty of Jesus in this miracle as we should. So when you come to this text, I just I really want you to pause this next week, this afternoon, and read through it slowly and carefully in light of the things that we cover today. And next time I will look at it in more detail. We will actually do an exposition of the text itself. But today we're giving you a historical and a prophetic context, a backdrop to set it in. I mean, this has got to be the most familiar and well-known stories of all time. This, this story is found, you, you, you've seen this story. There's a book laying in the nursing mom's room back there with this story in it. You've seen this story in every children's Bible you've ever came across. You've seen this story in every Bible storybook. But sometimes because of that, because of that familiarity with it, we actually miss the very point of it. Because we're so familiar or, or we, we even moralize it and, and misapply it because we don't really stop and know what's going on in this context. And, and sadly, when you when you look at these storybooks and I have looked at many, I've raised three boys. So we've actually read these stories very, very many times. But when you look at many of the books that feature this story at the center, these children's books, We're often told this was a miracle that came about because of one little boy, one little boy that was kind enough to share the lunch that his mom packed with him, to share that with Jesus. And then we're told that because of this boy's generosity, all of a sudden this miraculous feast will take place and this giant group of hungry people will now be happy and relaxed and sitting back on the green grass in this beautiful Galilean hillside on this beautiful day. And that's how we see it pictured in these storybooks. Sometimes even further, some people try to explain that in those storybooks. And they say that this story is is then basically this. It's It's simply a great example of sharing that should inspire everyone to have great generosity toward those around them like that little boy. It sort of becomes something like a moralistic Hallmark movie moment about sharing. Well, I'm here to shatter your past experience of reading these storybooks this morning. I'm here to tell you that if you have these views and these thoughts about this particular miracle, that that would be an inaccurate understanding of this story. Kids, listen, 
Sharing is important. I'm not saying not to share, okay? Sharing is important. But that's not why Mark puts it here in his gospel. That's not why this story is here in this gospel. This narrative is primarily, as always in Mark, about Jesus, the Son of God. That's the point. It's a revelation of his compassion. It's a revelation of his sufficiency. It's a revelation of his gospel all put into action. It's not primarily about a generous boy or weary and whiny disciples or the massive crowd of people that gathered. These these individuals and these groups are important because they do help form the backdrop or the setting on which the glory of the Son of God will shine most brightly. So, so the boy, the disciples, the crowd, they're all in the story. They're important, but only if we understand what they are here to point us to. And they are pointing us to the glory of Jesus that is displayed through this historic and prophetic miracle that we see in front of us here in Mark 6, 30 to 44. Now, what we need to understand as I, as I go through this today, it's going to feel much like a Bible study. And I need to do this because we're so separated from this time period in this culture. We need to, to bridge this gap. You see, the Jews that were there, the Jews that read this centuries later even, they would have clearly seen and understood that this narrative is pointing out that Jesus is the Messiah. They clearly understood this. We, we not so much. We, we struggle with that. We believe that theologically, but we don't see it in this context. And we need to do that. And so I want to give you the backdrop and historical context of this event and the crowd that's there. This crowd that, that follows Jesus and his disciples all the way around this lake to this desolate place. So we need to know something about the very setting that this is put in. Why does he call it a desolate place? Well, it's not a desert, all right? It, it is called a wilderness, but it's, it's not a desert. It's basically near the hill country of Bethsaida. And unlike the storybook versions that we read about, uh, it's not just full of a bunch of happy people on a holiday. You remember that many of the people there that day turned away from Jesus after this great miraculous event. Look at John's gospel, his account of this. John 6, John 6 and verse 60. Here's what happened. This immediately follows Jesus' miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. He says this, when many of his disciples heard it, heard Jesus' message, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? Many of those people who were called disciples there were not the 12 disciples. They were just disciples. They were just followers of Jesus' teaching, following him around from city to city. But they departed when they heard the things he taught in regard to the great miracle event in Matthew 6 or Mark 6. So I think it's important for us to understand this whole setting and understand who it is that we're dealing with here in this crowd. This wasn't a crowd, like I said, full of happy, joyful people who sit back on a holiday and have a you know, a picnic lunch with Jesus. That's not what's going on in this whole setting here. These weren't just peaceful, curious listeners that were following him to the other side of the lake. This was a mixed multitude, a mixed multitude of listeners. They were much like those who came out of Egypt with Moses. And that's what this is alluding to. Look with me at Exodus. Exodus. You're going to be all over the Old Testament this morning, Lord willing. Exodus 12. This is part of the backdrop that must be understood to see the brilliance of Jesus and his multifaceted glory that's shining in this narrative. In Exodus 12, 31, 
beginning in verse 31 down to verse 38. This is the kind of multitude that's there with Jesus in this desolate place. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among the people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. This is right after the, the, the basically these plagues came. So the people took their dough before it was leavened. Their kneading bowls were being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. Then it says this, A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. Keep that in mind, verse 38. Go to Numbers, chapter 11, verse 4. Remember, it's a mixed multitude who had very much livestock, both flocks and herds. 11 verse 4. Now the, the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. And then verse 13. Where am I to get meat for all these people? <laughs> right? There's a dilemma. There's something going on here. But these people are a mixed multitude, and they're craving something. They're complaining because God didn't give them what they really wanted. They're complaining about God's provision. Even though he had satisfied them in their immediate needs, they're still complaining. They're still not satisfied. That's what's going to take place in Mark 6. It says they were fully satisfied with the food Jesus offered, but when he brought them spiritual food to eat... They were no longer satisfied with this great Messiah. He's not the one they wanted. And so it was a mixed multitude. And like in Exodus, this mixed multitude here in Mark 6 was filled with what we would say is true disciples. Then we'd also have curious comfort seekers. And there among them, though, you need to keep this in mind. This is very important. There were not just these types of people in this mixed multitude. There were very many religious zealots. See, this... This sets the tone. This is the backdrop of this group, this crowd, this multitude. Theologian James Edwards comments on this event and this crowd. I think what he says is very helpful. He says this, several clues in the account suggest something else was brewing in this massive crowd led by 5,000 men. It had the makings of a revolutionary uprising because rural Galilee was a stronghold of the zealot movement. Galilee, and particularly this part of Galilee, which lay within eyeshot of Gamala, was the spearhead of freedom movements against Rome, the movement of resistance to Roman occupation, where there would be a passionate opposition to Rome in general and King Herod in particular. Now, do you remember the narrative? What happened last time? We had the narrative of John the Baptist beheading. So this crowd in Mark 6, this is who they are. There's a mixed multitude. Many of them, though, were probably from this very sect of zealots. Among them were some who were extremely antagonistic and rebellious against Rome, and in particularly rebellious against Herod. 
because of what he had done to John the Baptist, the man of God. So understand that as you read Mark, because this is very important to understanding all that takes place and the significance of how it reveals the Messiah, what he came to do at this time. So understand there's revolution and rebellion brewing there in Galilee, in this region. And then all of a sudden, Jesus shows up. He shows up doing what? What's Jesus show up doing in Mark's gospel? He shows up teaching with authority. He shows up performing messianic miracles. And so you know there had to be many there among this crowd that said, yes, this is the one. This is the promised leader and liberator of Israel. Let's go to him. This is important to understand as a backdrop. This actually helps us understand a little more clearly why Mark tells us there were 5,000 men running along the shore to meet Jesus in a desolate place. Because then they can conspire. They knew that there were thousands of people now following after Jesus. There was an army brewing here. There was a potential victory through this military leader that we see in Jesus. That seems to be the very mindset, according to John. Go back to John 6. This was happening. This is what the thinking is in the minds of the people. And you can see it most clearly here in John 6. I'm going to read 1 to 15. And verse 15 is the one verse that really makes it clear. This Jesus, he could be the militant Messiah that they're looking for. Verse 1, it says, After Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick, Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. This is important. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. So we have an environment filled with men who are ready for rebellion. It was the very height of this Jewish religion's season of joy and preparation and breaking free from all those who would bind them like they did in Egypt. Then he says in verse 5, Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this, to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered, 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. Doesn't this hearken your mind back to Psalm 23, verses 1 and 2? He leads them to lie in green pastures. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted... When they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the, Notice this. These two verses are key. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is clearly giving us an indication of the mindset of this crowd here when we see this. And and here Jesus is making it really clear what his mindset was to us as well. 
He's making it clear that his messianic and kingly mission on earth was not to fight against flesh and blood. Instead, he came to conquer our greatest enemies, sin and Satan. And he did that at the cross. And he did that not as a militant Messiah, but as the suffering servant of God. John actually makes that more clear as you read through his account of this whole narrative. It's clear that we we know this by looking back into the scriptures and seeing it. But we know that Jesus didn't come to do what they wanted him to do. He, He didn't come to rescue mankind from physical and political oppression. That's not why he came. He came to redeem us from the spiritual oppression of sin and Satan. And he conquered in that arena well. So that's the historical backdrop of this crowd and this event. So now I want to move us toward the prophetic backdrop, because I think this is key. This is truly important to understanding what this narrative is really all about. I think this prophetic backdrop will actually help you better understand much of the very words that Jesus says and the very actions that he displays in the narrative as you read it. And you will not look at it and gloss over it any longer. Notice something really important here. Let me get back to Mark 6. Notice something very important here. Almost every verse in verses 31 to 44, you know what you're hearing? You're hearing echoes of Old Testament prophecies throughout this whole narrative. The very words Jesus speaks, the very actions that take place are echoing the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah to come. And not only that, you also see, not just hear these things, you also see these things coming to pass, these prophecies coming to pass through Jesus' very actions in this narrative. And not only that, you don't just see Old Testament prophecies being spoken about and fulfilled coming to pass, but you also see future promises illustrated through his very actions in this text. This was illuminating to me. When I when I begin to study this this week, I begin to think, well, everybody knows the story, <laughs> How am I going to make this exciting, right? Everybody knows it. Listen, just knowing what's really happening contextually changes everything in this. First off, look at this. Look at at where the miracle takes place, as I said earlier, in Mark 6.31. It takes place in a desolate area. It's also referred to as a wilderness. Now, the best way to understand it, as I said, is it's an uninhabited place. It's not a desert. Again, it's hill country, away from the hustle and bustle of the city. And what Mark is doing here is he's wanting us to see something very important in this. Where else do we see where God's people are in a wilderness at? In Exodus, right? So he's wanting us to see that there's a divine parallel given to us here by God between this account and the account of Moses and the nation of Israel in the wilderness. Mark mentions this and emphasizes it highly in this text. Look at this. He repeats it three times. Verse 31, verse 32, verse 35. He mentions this desolate place that this feeding will take place three times. That's significant. That's a hermeneutical key to understanding the importance of this place. This setting is is basically to, to call us to mind the things that God did through the exodus in the wilderness. It's to call to mind Israel's exodus there and their need of a leader to bring them to the promised land, as it says in Numbers, Numbers 27. I know it's hard to find numbers sometimes. I get it. Numbers 27 and verse 16. This is what this narrative should call to mind for those who understand this context. It should bring this to your mind. Israel's exodus in the wilderness and their need of a leader to bring them out of that wilderness to the promised land. This is what happens here in Numbers 27, 16. 
Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who will go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. So the Lord said, take Yeshua, Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit and lay your hand on him. This echoes in Mark's gospel and the narrative that we see in Mark 6. And Mark's telling us that, look, this is the one. This is the one man. This is the man that God promised who would provide for the people of God to bring them out of the wilderness and into the promised land. God provided Jesus, the greater Joshua, to lead us home. That's what Mark is conveying in this very narrative. Look back at Mark 6:37. Even those players in this story have a historical and prophetic nature to themselves. We find in Mark 6:37 the disciples <laughs> They're overwhelmed by the size of the need that Jesus puts before them there, right? I love his response. Don't you love his response? They're like, Jesus, we can't do this. This is stupid. This is ridiculous. That's what, listen, you may not like me to say that, but there's, it's thick with sarcasm. It's arrogant sarcasm. Coming back from their apostolic mission thinking, hey, we conquered the world. And then all of a sudden they're going to counsel Jesus. Jesus says, you feed them. It's pretty amazing. But here in 637, we find the disciples, and they are, I mean, obviously overwhelmed by the size of the need in front of them. And so what do they do? They react, right? They react, but they react a lot like Moses. They react like Moses when he was confronted with Israel's need for food in the wilderness. Go back to Numbers. Numbers 11. I alluded to this earlier. Verse 13. Here's what Moses says. Sounds much like the disciples here in the narrative of Mark 6. He says, Verse 13, where am I to get meat to give all this people? For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. I'm not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. Verse 22, shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them and be enough for them? Shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them and be enough for them? It's not accidental, folks, that we hear the same kind of response In Mark's narrative at the feeding of the 5,000 from these disciples. It's not a coincidence. It's providence. God is providing for us an insight into the one who would be a greater Moses. Who would sustain his people. Who would be able to carry their burdens. Who would appoint men to serve them in a way that would be effectual and bring him glory in the end. We see that happening in Mark 6. And he chooses the apostles. Then, then notice back in Mark verses 39 to 40. What do you see going on there? We see actions taking place. Jesus steps up as the greater Moses, the leader of the people of God. He steps up as the greater Moses, leading and directing these people on what they ought to do to get them in order. He, he seats them. Basically, Jesus is arranging this very moment in time in order to actually replicate and make us reminiscent of Moses' very actions as he led the people of God in the Old Testament. Exodus 18. You notice the words there, the numbers rather there in Mark 6. Will you hear them again here? In 18.21. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs. Now notice this. Of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties. And of tens. In verse 25, 
Moses chose able men out of all of Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. This is intentional again. This is showing us that the greater Moses, the greater leader of God's people, the greater arranger of God's people, he is on the scene and he's working in a way that points them back to say, look, the people of God were led by God himself ultimately. And now he is in your presence. Next in Mark, in Mark 641, we see something else about Jesus's actions. I was telling someone this morning about this. This is fascinating to me. We see Christ's multiplication of bread here, the miracle of bread being reproduced, right, in Mark 6, 41. Well, what's this telling us? Why is this significant? Why, why do we often gloss over this, and yet the Jews probably didn't when they saw this and heard this? Because they, they knew and they understood quite well that this was pointing to God's provision in the book of Exodus, the provision of manna in the wilderness. Now, what I find interesting about this, and I'll probably mention it again next time, but no one seems to know exactly where the miracle took place, okay? Did it take place as the disciples were just taking their baskets of food from person to person and bringing it to them? Or did it take place, you know, as they, they received it from Jesus? There's a lot of different ideas about that. But the text itself, and I won't get into it today, but the text itself actually talks about the, the uh, aorist and the imperfect tense that's used in that phrase of Jesus multiplying the bread But basically, it sounds like much like this under his hand as he gave out the bread and the fish he was making new every time. Which just just makes me stop and think it's always under his hand that he actually reproduces his glory. And he's doing that when he works in our lives. He's continually his grace is abundant. It's abounding, continually coming to us over and over again. But it comes from his hand. He took something small and did something great with it, just like he does with us. Think about the 12 men that he chose. <laughs> we call these guys very common men, right? Why did he choose common men? Well, because there's so many of us. That's, that's why. All of us are common men and women, but we serve an uncommon God who acts on our behalf and provides for us what we need. In, in Exodus, in Exodus 16, we see this take place in God's provision for the nation of Israel in the bringing of manna, 1611. And the Lord said to Moses, I've heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the, on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground, when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. And we know this. This was simply just even there in that account pointing to something much greater. The bread of heaven that God would provide for his people in the wilderness of sin. That would be Jesus. So even in the multiplication of the bread, Jesus is testifying to who he is. Again, these these parallels that we see as you read through this narrative, they aren't accidental. They're given to us and they're meant to remind us of how God used Moses' leadership in the wilderness to provide for his people, his nation Israel, 
in order to teach us something about Jesus, the greater Moses, who came to provide the greater meal, the true bread of heaven for God's people. And he did that through a greater miracle, through the incarnation, through his work of redemption, through the resurrection. Jesus makes this connection clear to us back again in John's gospel and his account of this very same story once again. John 6, 22. Jesus explains why he's giving the physical illustration, why he's doing the very things he's doing, his actions in the feeding of the 5,000. He explains it in the rest of John's narrative here on this very day, or the next day, rather. Verse 22. On the next day, the crowd, that's the 5,000 that remained on the other side of the sea, it says, saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not returned or not entered, rather, the boat with his disciples but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near to the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples. They themselves got into the boats, and they went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, But because you ate your fill of loaves, do not labor for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. And they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it was written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then notice Jesus' response here. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. See, the very idea of the people there in the narrative of Mark being fully satisfied, this is ultimately what they were to be satisfied in, in who Jesus is. And coming to him, not for temporary blessings, but for eternal ones. He's using this bread and this fish as an illustration of that. He's telling us he is God's bread from heaven. He will fully satisfy the spiritual hunger of everyone who comes to him and trust in who he is. And then further toward the end of this narrative in Mark 6, verses 41 to 43. I think this is fascinating to look at in light of the Old Testament context that is actually shining clearly through. In Jesus' actions here of this miracle, what we're seeing here is a greater miracle than Elisha ever performed in the Old Testament. The two greatest miracle workers in the Old Testament were Moses and Elisha. And Jesus outshines them both here. Look at 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 42. So Jesus' greater miracle here is obviously clear when you read this. And you see what Jesus is doing in light of that. Because he's saying, look, you saw these miracles in the Old Testament, but I'm the greater miracle worker. I provide the greater bread, the eternal bread, the bread of life, the bread of heaven that is myself. But in verse 42 of chapter 4 here, it says, 
A man came from Baal Shalashah, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, twenty loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, Give to the men that they may eat. Does this not sound like Mark 6 to you? Just in that one sentence. But his servant said, How can I set this before a hundred men? Sounds like the disciples. So he repeated, Give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, They shall eat and have some left. So he said it before them, and they ate and had some left, according to the word of the Lord. Now, this, this is phenomenal when you see these things. Think about what it's saying here about Jesus. He's greater than Elisha, the greatest miracle worker in the Old Testament. Here, here Elisha fed 100 men with 20 loaves of bread. But Jesus, what's he do? He feeds 5,000 men, possibly eight to 10,000 people, with five loaves and two fish. Mark, I believe, truly had this in mind when he wrote this narrative. I'm sure he was thinking, this sounds like Elisha, but it's better. It's like the writer of Hebrews. Jesus is better, better than Moses, better than angels, better than all men, all created beings. He's trying to help us. Mark's trying to help us as you read this narrative to see that not only is Jesus the greater Joshua, the greater Moses, the greater David, he is the greater Elisha. We see that in the miracle. I mean, Mark, again, had to have this in his mind when he wrote. Because look, at the, there's so many similarities in this. I think it's absolutely amazing. Both stories have a hungry crowd who's lacking food, right? Both stories mention a leader's command to give to his servants to give these people food to eat. Both stories then reveal a surprising reply by the servants in response to the command. Both stories, though, we also see this. We find both stories telling us that what the prophet of God, the man of God, the God of very God, Jesus Christ, what he provided satisfied the hunger of the people and there was food left over. Listen, this is telling us something about Jesus in general. He can satisfy the hungry soul so much so that you will not complain. You will not look for other sources of sustenance. He can give you and keep on giving you more than you ever hope or dream because he is Jesus, the son of God, the bread of heaven who came to satisfy the weary soul, to feed us from God, the very truth that he is to reveal himself to us in a way that will transform us as the people of God so that we would never wander into sin again, that we would wander in this wilderness, but sustained by Jesus. That's what's happening. That's. That's the historical context here, okay? The prophetic context as well. Lastly, I want to show you this. I want to show you not just those two things, the historical context and the prophetic context, but I want you to see the future promises and provisions that are illustrated by Jesus' very actions in this text. His actions in this very miracle are important. Here's why. What's he doing? He's feeding hungry people. What's that make you think of? He's feeding those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He does that at the Lord's Supper. He's promised us a feast to come at the wedding banquet of the Lamb, the marriage supper of the Lamb. So, so in Mark 6, what we also see is, is a foreshadow of those two meals. We see a foreshadowing of the two meals that point to God's promises and provisions in redemption. The Lord's Supper and the marriage supper of the Lamb. Those future promises... 
I think if you can't see that when you read it, I don't think you need to be too upset because all you got to do is go back to John 6. You'll see it clearly there. John 6. John 6 makes it very clear that that's what this narrative is about. That's what his actions are illustrating through this very event. 648, he makes it really clear. I'm better than Moses. I'm better than the provisions even that were given to the people there in the wilderness. I am the bread of life, he says. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from the father from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputing among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, dwells with me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread of like the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus makes it really clear that even in this very act, this very action of breaking the bread, passing it out, distributing it in full to all the people till they're satisfied, he was pointing to how he would satisfy the hungry soul eternally. John and Mark are both telling us the same thing. They're trying to show us that Jesus' feeding of these 5,000 people in this wilderness was simply a foreshadow of his supper with the 12 there in the upper room before he was crucified. And, you know, when you read the account of the, 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 the communion, the, the Passover meal that they celebrated in the upper room, you have to understand that that was, that was going to come to pass the very next day. He was going to be the bread of heaven that was then slain, right, for sinners to be satisfied by God's grace. But it also foreshadowed, that very meal itself foreshadowed the greater meal to come. That meal at the Lord's Supper foreshadows the future feast in heaven that, again, Jesus is going to provide. He is going to bring to us. He is the, the greater Moses. He is the greater Joshua. He's the greater Elisha. He is going to sustain us. He is going to fulfill us, if you will, by his very presence. He's promised to give us this meal in the future based on his righteousness, his work of redemption. In Revelation 7, it says this, and I love this because it actually harkens again back to the very idea of a multitude gathered here in Mark 6. It says in Revelation 7, verse 9, that a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages are gathered there that day for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Church, I, I hope when you just read this, this is all just, I know it's a lot of information to take in, but I hope that as you read this and as you see this miracle take place in Mark six thirty-one to 44, I, I hope that you realize what Mark's trying to do for us today. He is trying to bring us face to face with Jesus, the Son of God, so we can behold his glory, so we can rejoice in who he truly is. He's not simply a miracle worker. He's not simply one who teaches moralistic ideas about sharing and being kind to one another. No, this is Jesus, the Son of God, Savior of sinners, sovereign ruler, creator, sustainer, who humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, to provide us eternal life. 
and all the provisions we need as we wander here in the wilderness of this world. I think as you, you read through Mark properly, historically, prophetically, understanding the context, I think what you're going to begin to see is this. You're going to see the multifaceted brilliance of Jesus Christ, and it will be breathtaking to you. So as you read this, as you study this, as you feast on this miracle this week, just remember this. This miracle is given here to reveal that very brilliance, the brilliance and the majesty of Jesus, who is the greater Moses, who leads his redeemed people to a greater exodus from sin. He is the greater Joshua that will lead his saints into the promised land. And as John points out very clearly in his account, Jesus is the bread of life, the bread of heaven that eternally satisfies all who trust in his sacrifice. Now, Lord willing, next time, next week when I come back, I'll actually go through this narrative with you verse by verse. And I'm excited to do that because it's very pastoral in application and implication. But in the meantime, here's what I want you to do. I want you to pray and read this message, this very illustration of the Messiah's ministry here in Mark 6. And as you do that, I hope that the very sermon that I've delivered to you this morning will help you to truly see what I'm talking about. Truly see the brilliance, the brilliance, the multifaceted brilliance of who Jesus is. Especially when you come to a very familiar narrative such as this. If you would, let's pray. Just give thanks for that this morning. And how he has multiplied his amazing grace toward us that we could even see these things. And discern who he is and his true nature and glory here in Mark. Six, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way you have opened our eyes to see that Jesus is greater. He is our sustainer, our savior, our sovereign. He is our merciful Lord. We thank you for the way you revealed yourself to us in this very miracle itself, Jesus. We want to see truly how brilliant you are, how wonderful you are, how glorious you are in the acts of compassion that we see here and in the work of supplying to your people all that they need. And Lord, we, we pray that we would see the, the work that you did there as our hope and our assurance that you are still working in our lives to multiply your grace in us and through us that we could minister to others, though we are yet nothing. Your work in us is brilliant. It is glorious because it comes from outside of us so that the surpassing glory belongs to you, Jesus, and not to us. I pray that in your name. Amen.